0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17, Uh, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17, we've been working through uh, the gospel of Luke. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus's surprising uh, choice for his apostles, chose those who the world would not think of choosing uh, a group that was destined to never get along, never to be able to do something together. When we we looked at how, when you have a zealot and and you have a tax collector, a, a Jewish zealot and a tax collector, it's like wars going to happen. And yet Christ chooses the most unlikely uh, that God might be glorified. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 17 and work our way through verse uh, 26. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, you would do what I cannot do, that uh, you would change hearts as your word is preached. Father, I pray that uh, uh, you would help me uh, correctly handle your word. And God, I pray that you would Work powerfully in the hearts of all of us through this amazing beginning to one of the most amazing, maybe the most amazing sermon ever preached. God, I pray that you would enlighten our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the title of this message is The Blessing Paradox. Just to remind you of what a paradox is, the dictionary says this of a paradox a seemingly absurd or self contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove to be well founded or true. Here's the Bible's definition of saying basically the same thing. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Even laughter in the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. The Bible says there's a way that may seem right to man, It just feels right, it just seems right, and yet it ends in destruction. Jesus' concern in this sermon, which we're going to talk about in a minute, most famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. People don't know if uh, Luke is referring to the same sermon or one like it preached in a flat place. Some think when they got to a flatter place on the mountain, he preached this sermon. But most of you have heard of the Sermon on on the Mount. The most lengthy lengthy version of it is found in Matthew 5 uh, through chapter 7. And it's a sermon that gets at the heart of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and a true follower of Christ. Jesus wants His disciples to understand the order and character of things, especially their faith. Now, we know this from human experience that order matters. Knowing what's to come helps us. I'll give you an example. When... I went to the University of Sioux Falls as a freshman. I grew up in Watertown. Sioux Falls seemed like a long ways away for me. I was kind of a homebody. I didn't want to leave home. I didn't want to leave my bedroom. I didn't want to leave my parents. But I went there to uh, go to school, and I got, got to play football uh, for the University of Sioux Falls, which meant I had to show up two weeks early in August for football camp. And the first day, I remember getting done with three practices in one day, and the coaches not seeming very nice, and myself feeling overwhelmed and totally out of place, I remember calling my dad and being like, come pick me up. I do not want to do this. I don't like football. It's nothing like playing football in Watertown. This doesn't look like fun at all? And I remember one of the sophomores on the football team must have been sensing this. By the way, my dad just said, tough. <laughs> You're going to have to pay for everything and find a place to live if you come home. So there's no place for you. You're going to school. So I realized real quick, I'm staying. And, uh, but I was comforted because a sophomore came alongside me and he told me, he says, let me tell you what's happening right now. He goes, I remember being in your shoes, and what the coaches are doing right now is they're trying to weed out the wimps, and you're this close to being a wimp, basically, is what what I'm realizing. He's like, the first two weeks will be like a living hell. They're not going to be kind to you. They're going to put pressure on you, and 15 to 20 players are going to quit, And the coaches want you to quit, because then they don't have to deal with you when you quit three months into the season. But it gets better. He's like, after two weeks, after a good portion of guys quit, everything's going to change. Even the way the coaches treat you are going to change. And sure enough, uh, that's what it was. So as a sophomore, it it was a lot easier knowing that this is just for a time, and then it's going to get better. The suffering's going to let up. There's going to be reward for uh, staying the course. We know this. Work is like this. We know that a paycheck comes at the end of hard work, And we also know when this self-destructs, like credit cards. You know, go get all this stuff before you've worked to earn the money for it. We know that that self-destructs on us think of drugs instant gratification instantly feeling better but unfortunately you get it backwards you go after instant gratification and a whole lot of pain and suffering comes later i remember uh, last spring uh, when i finally got to graduate after seven years of seminary uh i was talking uh to the student advisor and we were trying to work out my last few classes and she said you know what you can graduate and finish those classes over the summer (laughs) and I'm like no way imagine graduation on the front end graduation celebration before the work's done that's no true celebration I wanted to be there on that day done nothing Left. The suffering comes first and then comes the celebration. It's necessary for Jesus' disciples to understand what the true road of blessing looks like. It's necessary for them to understand the spiritual truths of the kingdom of God, how they run contrary to conventional wisdom of men. In this section of the sermon, we're going to look at what is called and what is known as the Beatitudes, the supreme blessings. And these these Beatitudes are not like a blessing like you pray a prayer over someone and bless them. It's a statement of fact. You're either blessed or you're not. Jesus either says you're blessed or woe to you. These are statements of facts. And then the Beatitudes have a paradoxical feel to them. It seems to run contrary. Spiritual wisdom runs contrary to what seems normal to the average human mind, uh, one commentator Fitzmeyer says this: A paradox is often involved in the beatitudes. The first part describes the condition of the disciples in a, in, the, in the sense in the present the, but the second part of it is the promise in his or her uh es- eschatological lot meaning. The first part of the beatitude is this is how it is now. But in the end, here's what your lot is going to be. So it has the feeling of where are you at within the blessing. Knowing where you're at is important for Christ. And you'll see it in this text. Let me tell you why this is so practical. Why everyone should perk up and listen. If you value your soul and you believe God's word is his word and God's word says many think this is the right way but often that leads to destruction then all of us ought to listen up. This week I read uh, a quote by a a man named uh, Jonathan Lehman who works for Nine Marks Ministries and here's what he said. I want you to Pay careful attention and think about this. One can understand the appeal of religious nominalism. Now, nominalism just means uh, claiming something in name only. The essence of it isn't really there. Someone says, "I'm a Christian," and name only. So he says, "One can understand the appeal to of religious nominalism." Uh, Because of this, it gives you answers to life's larger metaphysical existential questions so that you no longer have to think about them. Then you're free to get on with thinking about yourself and doing what you want. He says, here's the draw to this shallow Christianity in name only. Because you get to quit thinking about what happens when I die. Oh, Jesus pays for my sin. Uh, What's the meaning of my life? Well, my meaning of life is to live a blessed life, an abundantly blessed life. I know I'm going to die, but I know I'm going to be raised again. I know there's going to be forgiveness for my sin. He says many Christians are nominal Christians simply to answer the big questions of their life so then they can get on living how they want to live anyways selfishly for themselves now listen to me that is scary we can actually do this with christianity in fact most of jesus followers probably fell in to this category because he kind of had the big group of followers called disciples But then we read in John's Gospel that most of them even walked away when the rubber met the road. Then you're free, Lehman says, to get on with thinking about yourself and doing what you want. Get these big questions dealt with. Listen how contrary this is to Scripture. Paul says in Colossians 3.1, If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. If you're a Christ follower, then set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. How could you just go on, now that these questions are answered, living as though that's no real part of your life. In this sermon, Jesus clearly lays out what the evidence looks like for when one has saving faith in the here and now. A person saved by trusting in Christ and Jesus is talking to people saying, here's the fruit. Here's what the saving character of a Christian really looks like. These are the ones that have blessing waiting for them, and these are the ones that have woes waiting for them. So Jesus gives them valuable information about the heart of these two different groups that are before Him, both under the name of disciples. This information is incredibly devastating to one group, And incredibly life giving and encouraging to the other group. It is spiritual truth that runs contrary to the flesh and conventional wisdom. It doesn't just correct conventional wisdom a bit, but it's the antithesis of it. So this sermon doesn't come along with flawed human thinking and just corrects it, it's the opposite. It's the antithesis of the way the world thinks. I want to demonstrate this I want uh, uh, just uh, by reading a few passages. Uh, the New Testament tells us to expect this. We're told in Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's your flesh. Here's what you want to do naturally. Here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't come along and help a little bit. It's in opposition. They're opposite of each other. In fact, Paul's saying, my preaching is powerful, not because I have fancy words and it's impressive, but I'm not impressive at all. I'm weak. And yet, power is coming out of it, not because I'm a great orator, but because the Spirit of God is showing up and bringing spiritual wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says this, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I preach Christ to one person, Ah, (laughs) that's craziness. Another person, this changed my life. It's power to change the type of person I am. And then in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, Paul says, we impart this, this teaching, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there are some people, unless God comes and gives them spiritual understanding, they're just going to hear Jesus' sermon and say, this is craziness. This is contrary to what anyone would think. The Bible's chalked full examples. You won't believe how many scriptures I had to cut so this wasn't a two-hour sermon just to prove it to you that this is the whole Bible. The Bible says things like, the humbled will be exalted, the proud will be brought low, the foolish will be wise, the wise will be proven fools, the blind will see, those who see will be blind. The weak will be strong, the strong will be weak, the sick will be saved, the healthy will be destroyed, the nobodies will be somebodies, and the somebodies will be brought to nothing. Those who lose their life will find it, but those who find their life will lose it. You you see how the wisdom of God is complete opposite from the way we naturally think? The kingdom of God is opposed to the kingdom of this world. That's why John can say in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away. Now listen to the passing of time. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Right now, the world's getting its thing, all of its desires, all of its praise, all of its glory, but that's passing away. And those who live this odd life looking forward, they're going to last forever There's a principle Paul lays out. Suffer now, glory later. As Christians, we think, God, you're not loving me. Look at the suffering I'm going through. And yet this is what the Bible's promised us. We suffer and die now and the glory's coming later. In Romans 8.16, he says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. We're children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's how you know. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Here's what he's saying here. He's not just talking about circumstantial suffering, although that's there. He's mainly talking about a person who's putting to death their old selfish self. You want to know how the Spirit comes and tells you you're a Christian? When you find yourself killing the old man, putting to death that which seems so natural. Now, people, true Christians who struggle with assurance sometimes are like, you won't believe my struggle. I keep fighting this thing and... It's like, well, what's the evidence? How do, you, how do you know the Spirit's in you? You're fighting the old man. Non-Christians aren't. They don't do that. And then he goes on to say, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that's going to be re- uh, revealed to us. You, you see how Paul does that? He goes, "I know the suffering you have right now, but if you have a scale and you take all the suffering you're going through, putting to death your sin and suffering in this world, put it in a scale over here, and then on this side, you have the eternal weight of glory that's being waiting for the Christian. He says, "It's a stupid thing to weigh. They're not worthy to be compared. Don't even put them in the same scale." There's no comparison to them. And then he says this for creation waits eagerly, or with, with eager, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The plants, the animals, everything is longing for the day when this futility that's been put on it will be relieved. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be, this is in the future, set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, that's in the present. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for he who hopes for what for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The true Christian is groaning and is not in love with this world, but yes, can enjoy things in this world, but even the things they enjoy most seem really small compared to what they're hoping for. They are waiting for this redemption, for this glory. In fact, Christians can enjoy this earth better than non-believers. They really can, because it's functioning as it's supposed to be. You're supposed to enjoy the creation, give glory to God, and not make it into an idol. Nonbelievers make it all into an idol. But even though we can enjoy this place more than everyone else with thanksgiving, we are waiting for something so much better when we're not fighting our sin anymore and we're not dealing with cancer and everything else that we deal with in this world as we're groaning so, all that as introduction to what, how Jesus starts this sermon. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. We'll see that in a minute. And we have this, these couple verses, verses 17 through 19, from the time when he chose his apostles to before the sermon starts. Here's what we read. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. It's a huge group of people who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and, and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out, of, out from him and healed them all. Now, first thing I want to point out is this. He chooses the apostles and he just gets done doing that and everyone's coming to Jesus, not them, and the powers coming out of Jesus. In 3 chapters power is going to be coming out of the apostles. But it's like Luke wants us to know that the power that comes out of the apostles when he sends them out is from him. All the power comes from Christ. Now imagine if you were there. I was thinking, you want to know what the most miserable person there must have been? The healthy person. Because this text tells us that everyone who touched him was healed. The power of God came out of them, out of Christ, and healed them. Everybody's experiencing the power of Christ, I suppose, except the healthy person who doesn't have a demon... And isn't sick. Well, there's good news for you. In this sermon, you're going to find out you're sick. And you need the power of Christ to be powerful in your own life. Look at verse 18. All right, I'm sorry. Um uh, just want to point out, this is Jesus' second sermon. He, his first sermon was pre- preached in Luke chapter 4. It has a similar tone to it. You remember when Jesus was in his hometown synagogue, the people that love him most? And he gets up and he preaches the sermon The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Great sermon, right? Well, it's a great sermon. And then, and then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and said, they're all looking at him, and he says, today the scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you were blind and poor and captive and oppressed, if that's how you viewed yourself... This is the best sermon you've ever heard. But if you are rich in your own mind, if you see clearly, if you're not captive to anything, if you're not oppressed, then you want to know what you do after you hear this sermon? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove them out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which was their town, their town was built so they could throw them down the cliff. This is their own beloved Jesus. And Jesus preaches. There's good news, but it's for a specific group of people. And the people that heard the sermon thought, well, this isn't us. Good news isn't coming to us. In fact, He just tried to expose our hearts. Let's kill Him. Let's get rid of Him. There's no neutral to, these, to this sermon that Christ is about to preach. There's two ways. Those who Jesus says woe to and those who he preaches blessing to. Look at verse 20. Let's look at the sermon. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The words we're going to see repeated are blessed and woe, In this section of his sermon, what it means to be blessed, uh, MacArthur writes, refers to those in the most beneficial, most favored position who experience the true well-being that comes from a right relationship with God. The woes referred to in this text refer to those in the worst, most unfavorable condition who will experience calamity, disaster, and damnation because they're wicked. The blessed are those in the most favored position. And Jesus says this very odd thing, blessed are you who are poor. Does that sound opposite of what our world would say? For yours is the kingdom of God. We're helped out a little bit from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew says, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. You see, there's no great, uh, nothing morally superior to not having much money than to those who do have money. He's talking about the state of a person's spiritual condition. Blessed. Those who are in the best spiritual condition that have blessing Waiting them are those who know in their bank account of righteousness there's nothing. This word poor is the most offensive word. It's it's a cowering beggar. It means to cower that you can't even look up, and to beg means you don't view yourself as having any means to make something. And help yourself. You're in the most helpless position. You're so ashamed that all you can do is put your head down, hold up your hand, and beg, saying, I am bankrupt of righteousness, and I have no hope. Jesus looks at his disciples. Look at verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now there's a group of all sorts of different people But this sermon is targeted at those who are claiming we want to follow you. We want to learn from you. And what he tells them is you're in the blessed position if you view yourself this way. Now, right now, is this how you view yourself? Those who wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff in the first sermon saw themselves as seen, not blind. They didn't see themselves as captives. They saw themselves as good. You want to know how scary this is? I was just witnessing uh, to a friend of mine yesterday who I'm pretty sure is not a believer, but he's pretty sure he's a pretty good guy. And you would, from a worldly standpoint, he's one of the nicest guys I ever know. But he thinks so too. And if he's going to stand before God, you're not going to see a beggar You're going to see, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Goodness. And Jesus lays this out. Blessed are the poor for theirs. (laughs) Look at this reversal. Is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to get everything. The full inheritance of Christ. This is why I love the gospel. It's the opposite of every other religion. You better do this and get good enough so that God looks down and say, oh, good enough in comparison to those dogs over here. Christianity is, there's only one who are blessed. The ones who are humbled to begging. If you entered Christianity because you thought this is what moral people do, and you thought, well, I'm a right one and the Bible's right, and so I should be in a Bible church because I'm right, Bible's right, we're all right, then that's scary. You know there's Christian radio stations that are built off this? We're the right ones. Here's what it means to be Christian. We're right. And there's the enemies. It's the opposite of the gospel. Those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be satisfied. For the one who has no resources, for the one who has no righteousness, Jesus says the one who's hungry for what he doesn't have Looking for righteousness. Do you realize you don't really hunger for what you have? It's like once a year I get to eat the $28 Hunter's ribeye at Minerva's. And that red sauce with that big onion on top. That's the the best thing ever. And I hunger for it often because I don't have one every day. The person who's poor in spirit hungers for that which he lacks morally before God. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. There are some people who claim the name of Christ that if you ask them how they're doing, they're well. They're good. They got this thing. This is why I'm eternally thankful for biblical counseling. Here's who I thought I was. My biblical counseling professor starts opening the Word of God and showing me who I really am, the state of my pride, the state of my selfishness, the state of my unbelief. And I can tell you, I started needing Jesus' righteousness a whole lot more. A hunger inside saying, God, I am bankrupt. I need something I don't have. And God can give it to us. In Psalm 63, listen to the psalmist. O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life? God, I'm, I'm just thirsting for you because your love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I bless you as long as I live. In your name I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips." when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night when I meditate you on the watches in the night it's as my hunger is being quenched when I eat the hunter's ribeye is that true for you? have you tasted God that way? John Piper uh, says this about this text. He says, the word as forces the all-important issue in verse 63. Does your soul taste God as our tongue tastes food? Are we alive to spiritual pleasures or our only physical sensations? That's a question you have to ask. See, if you've never tasted the hunter ribeye, you don't hunger for it. But if you've tasted it, in my opinion, you're going to want it. And if you've tasted God and His goodness, then you're going to hunger for more of that taste. Is that true? Psalm 34 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. You see, fear makes a whole lot more sense now. When you see God for who he is and you know you're bankrupt, you don't come waltzing into God's presence. It's like, oh yeah, I got this. No. He says, Young lions suffer want and hunger but those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing if you want to know what this looks like time permits us from going through it read Psalm 51 if you want to see a man who knows he's sinful saying things like, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. David knew who he was. And he knew that God was full of mercy and grace. And so he looked right at his sin and he said, God, I'm looking at it, and I need your steadfast love. Make my lips sing. Make my heart feel joy again in your mercy. (laughs) The Bible is so opposite of the world. Paul says this in Romans 4.4, To the one who works, his wages are counted, not as a gift, but as a due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who doesn't work to be good enough, but believes in the one who justifies the ones who aren't good enough, those are the ones that get all the righteousness given as a gift. Isn't this contrary to our flesh? At one point, Paul is brought to the point of swearing in Philippians 3 when he's looking at his past life, all of his efforts. He says, indeed, I count everything loss. He calls it rubbish according to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's saying, I count it excrement. All my working, all my righteousness I thought I had once I saw Christ, it was nothing. So, Jesus says the amazing statement, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Christian, there will be a day where you will not sin again. When Christ returns and you see Him as He really is, you will not sin again. And you know what? You'll become more and more sanctified as you see Him in your Word that's how we change. We look at His glory and it changes us. 1 John 3, you'll be changed when Christ returns and you see Him as He really is. And His righteousness is fully in your account. You will be satisfied. You won't say, God, you left a hunger in me for more righteousness. No, you will be satisfied in Christ. All right. Look at the third. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So the person who knows they're bankrupt of righteousness and are hunger hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that isn't their own, that's found only in Christ Jesus. Those people who are weeping over their sin and rebellion. If you only think of sin as breaking like rules that God just threw out there, you're not going to weep. But if you think about the fact that God is your creator, He made you to love and know Him and to be a part of his family. And you and I gave him the middle finger and said, no. You realize? I'll never forget one preacher, he says, God, God says to the planets, be, and they're there. God says to the stars, be, and they're there. He tells the planets to whirl and they whirl. He creates the sea and says, you can only come this far, and they stop, and he co- comes to man and says, follow me, and man says, no. Your sin ought to break your heart. You ought to weep over the fact that you and I stiff-arm God. And Jesus is saying, the one who sees God that way and tastes of His goodness weeps of his own rebellion and his own sin... In fact, one point in John 16, before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus knew, he's talking about leaving them. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, this is what you're asking yourselves. Here's what I meant by saying, a little while you'll not see me, and in a little while you will see me. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's saying, when I'm hanging on that cross, you'll weep and lament. They'll rejoice. This is entertainment for the day. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. See the principle? The world will have its heyday now, but you won't cry forever. Your joy... A few days later, Peter's running full bore. John's running full bore because Jesus is resurrected. There's hope. In fact, when Jesus is carrying His cross in Luke 23, 26, as they led Him away, they seized one, Simon Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on Him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed Him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem who are representing Israel that has just turned Jesus over to the Romans to be killed. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Jesus didn't want self-pity. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they'll say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. They will begin... Uh, Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Here's what he's saying to them. He says, don't cry for me, cry for yourself. Because you, Israel, have rejected me. And you've turned me over to the Romans. And the Romans say I'm innocent. And what the Romans do when they say that man's innocent, when Pilate says that, they nail him to a cross. And he says, if I'm the tree that's true and alive and they nailed me to the cross and you're the wicked schemers, you're the dry wood, what's going to happen to you? He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. Repent. And it wasn't very many years later that the Romans killed so many of them and dispersed them all over the earth. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. (laughs) I love it. Laugh. Look at verse 22. And here's where it gets just out of this world crazy sounding. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. Hey, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you. You want to know what? My middle... Hope, my seven-year-old, she loves it when Ella gets invited to do something she doesn't get to, when she's excluded. She just rejoices over it. No, she doesn't. That's not what we do. We don't rejoice when we're excluded from things. Jesus preaches this weird sermon and says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. When that happens, throw a party. Rejoice. Leap for joy. Don't just throw a party, dance. Leap for joy, for behold, now get this, your reward is great in heaven, for so your fathers did to the prophets. He's saying, know what blessing is. Know what's in store when the world rejects you. You see, the disciples are going to have to learn this because they're going to be treated cruelly just as their master was treated cruelly. But they knew that their reward was secure. And then he gets to the woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This is your party now. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all, who, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Do you see your poverty, your spiritual poverty? Do you feel it? Has it humbled you? Has it sought you to hunger for God, for righteousness that you don't have, a foreign righteousness, a God who saves the ungodly and gives the gift of righteousness? Have you hungered for that God? Have you tasted and seen His goodness and His mercy? Have you wept over your rebellion? Have you rejoiced when you've been rejected for being one of the weird ones? The world looks at your wisdom and says, this is foolishness. Blessed are you. That weird group of disciples that God by his mercy has opened their eyes to see who they really are, are the truly blessed ones. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Jesus, because he loved you, And because God loved you, God sent His Son. He went to the cross so that He could take your sin on Himself. And God the Father, being a just Father, crushes His Son on the cross so that you may be the righteousness of God. That You may have the righteousness of Christ. It's the great exchange. God says I love you. I know who you are. Open your eyes. Admit who you are. Admit Your bankruptcy. Look at what I did for you. My son never sinned. He has perfect righteousness. And Jesus in his love holds out that righteousness and says, give me your sin. I'll take it. You put this in your account. I'll take the punishment for what you deserve and you receive the great reward for what I, how I lived. It's the great exchange. My prayer is is that you know that If you know that, you're one of the weird ones, but you're blessed. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you. I mean, we're just looking at the very beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached. Father, I pray that you would humble us, that we wouldn't be humbled to despair, though, but that we would see Christ, our Redeemer. We would see your love. We would taste your goodness. Lord, I pray all of us would trust in you by faith. Cling to Christ in Jesus' name, amen.